Hello, everyone. I'm Jen Dawson, the Associate Director of Educational Programs at the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. And today I'm going to be sharing with you some incredible highlights from the inaugural International Societies for Investigative Dermatology meeting that took place earlier in May in Tokyo, Japan. This incredible meeting brought together dermatology societies from all over the world for some hard-hitting, innovative dermatology research presentations. So while I was there, I also had the opportunity to attend two amazing poster sessions, and I had a chance to interview some of those poster presenters. That's what you're about to hear now. I hope you enjoy this. First up is Neha Momin, a clinical researcher from Stanford University, discussing her poster, Long-Term Use of Topical BVEC in Two Patients with Dystrophic Epidermolysis Bullosa. Please tell me about your poster. Yeah, so we are looking at the long-term use of a topical gene therapy for dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa patients. Um, currently, there is no cure or treatment, and so there are many different types of gene therapy um, that are being developed right now. And ours is unique because it is uh, using the topical BVAC. Um, and so we are looking at the long-term effects in two patients, one that has dystrophic dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa and one that has recessive dys, uh, dystrophic epidermolysis bullosa. Um, and we've been with the recessive patient since 2018 during phase one and two of our trial. And as you can see in the images, um, they have demonstrated healing and wound durability as well. Um, and when the patient first started with us, he was severely underweight, um, very malnourished. Um, a lot of times EB patients are diagnosed with a failure to thrive, but along with the closure of his wounds, we've also seen that his systemic measures of health are also uh, showing some progress. So. He's currently in the normal weight range and his albumin levels have increased and his height as well. And so I think overall we've shown that the topical gene therapy is, um, it continues to show efficacy and it shows safety and there have been uh, no serious adverse events that have been reported during the trial. And uh, we hope to get approval from the FDA soon so that patients outside of the trial also have access to the drug. This is amazing work. I heard Dr. Marinkovich's talk on this. Yes, he's actually right there. <laughs> yes. uh, this is incredible. Mm -hmm. And for our listeners who can't see your poster, how long did it take your patient to achieve uh, wound closure? Um, so it varied. There were some wounds, I would say, uh, during phase three uh, that achieved uh, the full closure, I would say. Yeah. This is fantastic work. Uh, it's definitely something you should be proud of. And I'm crossing every body part to hope that the FDA approves this because this is really important. Thank definitely. you so much, Neha. Thank you so much. <laughs> So hi, my name is Finette Benjungo. I'm a fourth year medical student at Meharry Medical College and I'm actually on a research year at Stanford Dermatology working with Dr. Eleni Linos. I'm actually working on um, an app development for skin monitoring. Oh, fantastic. So we're actually doing multiple diseases at the same time. Um, cool. My specific disease is hydradenitis aperitiva. So we were looking at the feasibility of monitoring disease activity from home remotely. Mm -hmm. When we think about chronic skin diseases or chronic, chronic diseases in general like hypertension or diabetes, we have that ability to monitor disease at home. 
But with chronic skin diseases, it's a little bit nuanced, and especially since tele telemedicine and all the things that have started uh, since COVID-19. Right. The digital platforms are um, increasing in prevalence. So we look at how we're, we are able to um, monitor skin disease remotely. We actually recruited 27 participants um, from uh, in-person clinics at Stanford Dermatology, as well as uh, remotely, we call it via telephone. Um, they participated in this 26-week-long uh, longitudinal observational study where we sent them automated text message reminders using REDCap and Twilio, where they were able to open up this um, web link and uh, share photos of their skin, as well as answer questions about pain and quality of life. And so they had the freedom, actually, to just upload this. It wasn't um, very uh, standard. They had the weekly reminder but they had the freedom to upload when they felt the most comfortable because, again, the sensitivity with HS, we want to make sure that they feel comfortable to upload when they felt um, they were able. So over time, we were able to collect over 421 photos, and this is an example oh of the scores and photos we were able to collect over time. This is a early stage 2 patient. One thing that's really interesting about this is in the first half of her um, disease course that we were monitoring, her disease doesn't, activity doesn't look too, too terrible. But actually around this time, she had a baby and she was able to tell us that through her Skindex mini symptoms um, questionnaire. And we see that her disease activity is a lot higher, a lot more frequent um, flares and different things like that happen. So her disease half. activity increased postpartum? It increased postpartum, yep. And it was something that she had put in her Skindex. Um, so a lot of patients actually, interesting, kind of use it almost as a diary. Yeah. My skin, my skin is changing a lot more since I've had this baby. I've been nursing. I'm feeling pain at this point in time. And so they're kind of um, able to give us a little bit more details oh, that we wouldn't necessarily gosh. get at yeah. just a week four visit, right? I mean, and that just blows the door open for additional research, exactly. right? I mean, how many more questions could you possibly exactly. ask? I mean, oh, my gosh. Exactly. And so we actually did collect some feedback for some of these patients because we did see a um, differences in upload rates. So for the early stage one patients, they're very active, uploading much more frequently. But okay. early stage three disease weren't as frequent with their uploads. So there's a lot of different factors that go into it. So one of them being um, pain, pain causing the hindrance of moving and being able to actually take the pictures. Um, but then there are also some people who found, even though they had um, worse disease and more scarring, different things like that, actually did like having the ability to take a picture of their skin and to capture the disease activity at a, a specific point in time, yeah. seeing, okay, what did I do differently this week? My, my skin didn't flare this week. And they actually felt a little bit more empowered and look, looking beyond the pain and just the, you know, the surface level experience of um, HS. I was actually looking into um, something called, um, uh, it's some type of, um, I can't remember at this point in time, but I basically, know, it's been a long day. Course, yeah, honestly. Um, but it's like a passivity with the disease, not really want to pay attention to it, not really wanting to think about it, but actually having the opportunity to stop and think, okay, like, what did, what did I do better this week? Or what, what did change? Maybe I do need to go see my doctor and actually giving them an opportunity to really share what it is that's going on with their skin disease is something that we've been excited to see with this. So we're excited to see where this could go. There's a lot of different ways that we could look at this in terms of, um, uh, treatment, if treatment efficacy is something that is uh, really, uh, if, if the treatment is efficacious. So if we were seeing this patient, like at this point in time, we're like, you know, okay, maybe she's good on the treatment regimen that she's at. But here, seeing how frequently she's flaring, exactly, is, is her treatment as optimal as it right. So we're really excited to see the different ways we can do this, uh, maybe incorporate AI in the future and having that component of this yeah. remotely. So we're excited. We're very yeah, excited. I yeah. should say so. So you touched on a lot of things, I know, yeah. which is pretty incredible. But what is, like, if you could narrow down one thing that surprised you, what would it be? Ooh, hmm, that's a good question. Honestly, I would have to say the benefits that patients saw. I think when we think about HS, the, the hesitancy to expose intimate areas of the body oh, and yeah. hesitancy to just share their experience. 
a lot of people are very, you know, they want to share and they want to develop the research and want to help other patients with HS. But I think what I was really surprised about when I was talking to patients and they really felt as though they felt empowered by looking at their skin versus the thought is nobody, like they don't want to look at it, they don't want to think about it and actually giving them the opportunity to see how they're progressing and they actually felt empowered. I think that was the most surprising thing for me. Yeah, I would agree because I could see it both ways, but I mean, as personally, I would be like, oh, I don't want to yeah. do this today. Yeah, I don't yes. feel good about myself. It yeah. would be hard. Mm -hmm. But so it's really terrific that yeah. you had patients so willing yeah. and so open and, yeah. and so willing to uh, further research for the benefit of other patients. Exactly. Like, isn't that like what it's a, all about? It's a frequent thing with HS patients, too. Yeah. The thought is not like, if there's nothing I want to gain from this. I want to help people and help people's experiences. And that's something they would often put in the comments section. Like, I want to do this for the research. I want to do this for the benefit of others. I'm so thankful for what you're doing. So I'm excited to see how that can just continue to snowball and people continue to contribute to the research efforts for HS. Oh, absolutely. This is fantastic work. I really appreciate you talking with me. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Enjoy the rest of the meeting. Thank you for stopping by. Nice to meet you. Hi, my name is Lauren Banner. I work with Dr. Ikba and Dr. South at Thomas Jefferson University. And we've been working on the rigoceratip trial in the treatment of recessive dystrophic epidermal lysis bullosa associated squamous cell carcinoma. Wonderful. So tell me all about your project. Okay. So Dr. South at, at Thomas Jefferson University has been working on EB search for a long time. He's screened uh, a lot of different pathways in recessive dystrophic epidermal lysis bullosa related SCCs. So I'm just going to refer to that as RDB yep. SCCs. Um, and he found there were differential genes expressed in those SCCs compared to normal human keratinocytes. And what he found was that polo-like kinase, sRNA, was the most um, specific, um, I guess, gene pathway okay. that was different in these normal versus RDEB SCCs. And it was also it was able to kill the SCCs, but not the normal skin cells. Wow. And so then he screened different compounds that were polyakinase inhibitors, different drugs that were already on the market, and he um, targeted this rigoceratib from Onkanova, and he called up Onkanova and was like, hey, we have a really great match for your drug. We use it in, um, we study it more, and then they developed a clinical trial looking at rigoceratib in um, RDEB SCCs. And so it's open in two locations. There's one in Austria and one, and I'm working on the one in the U.S. And this is for patients that have failed wide local excision or immunotherapy, which is the standard of care. Okay. Um, for these, they're very aggressive squamous cell carcinomas. They don't look like that on histology, but they metastasize very quickly. And a lot of the patients with RDEB um, actually die of these like very, very young. And this is a very unmet need because there aren't really any treatments for this. Absolutely. This is really important work. So you're in the enrollment phase right now. Is that what I'm understanding? Yes. So we're enrolling right awesome. now. How do people get in touch with you? So they can contact um, Dr. South. Okay. Um, via email, you can go on clinicaltrials.gov. Got it. Um, so Dr. South, I think Dr. Nickbuff's email is also on clinicaltrials.gov. And just um, shoot one of them an email, and we'll try to get you enrolled. That is great. Yeah. Well, there's. it sounds like there's a lot of great information to come. 
with uh, your enrollment and then ultimately the completion of the trial. So we really look forward to that. And thank you so much for talking with me tonight. Yeah, of course. Just a quick note here. While this trial is not a pediatric trial, there is a link to its information that's being housed in clinicaltrials.gov in the episode notes. Uh, I'm Dr. Shenpei Wayne, and I'm a dermatologist trained in Taiwan. But now I'm doing research fellowship at UCSF and also at UCSD with Dr. Lawrence Eichenfeld. Wonderful. You're in great hands with Dr. Eichenfeld and, of course, the team at UCSF as well. They're wonderful. My poster is about the impact of climate change on atopic dermatitis. So we did a systemic search and review with uh, many counselors in the International Eczema Council. So International Eczema Council is a council of a group of experts in atopic dermatitis. And we wanted to do this topic because we know atopic dermatitis is very sensitive to environmental factors. Uh, skin is a barrier to the environment. Uh, many environmental factors are affecting atopic dermatitis. For example, patients may have worse disease control when, it's, when the weather is hot because sweat is a stimulant to the skin. And yeah, so that's why we think climate change would be a very important topic for we to understand. So this is a collaborative work involving more than 15 collaborators. Yeah. Yeah, and the, the study is led by Dr. Katrina Abrabara at UCSF okay. and also Dr. Alan Irving at, at Trinity College Dublin. The key finding is actually not surprising. Like you can imagine that climate change is bad for atopic dermatitis. Bad yeah. for everything. Yeah, bad <laughs> for everything. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So the uh, so the major finding is not surprising at all. Like it's climate change doesn't serve anything good. The major finding of our review, in addition to the harmful effect of climate change, is that we also use this change to to know what's the literature, what's the data available out there, and also point out how limited the data is. Because we do a narrative review on 10 climate hazards linked to greenhouse gas emissions. So we search for, for example, we search for warming and AD, we search for heat waves and AD, and just see how many mm -hmm. studies with primary data is out there. Mm -hmm. But in the end, we only got 17 studies. So this really points out how limited the data is out there, especially mm -hmm. when the when this topic is has a like an urgent pressing right, need. Right, right. If we we talk about and we research climate change all the time, but you know we. Like, like you said, there's not a great abundance of research in skin and climate change. Yeah, and also we did a map to show the geographic distribution ah, of data. Yes. Like where is the data from on um, mm -hmm. AD and climate change? So yes. among the 15, no, no, sorry, among the 17 studies, there are five studies from the U.S. Okay. And if you look at the map, you can see most of the countries on the map are colored in gray. That means they don't have any primary data on climate change and AD. So right. the data, not only the number of data, not only the number of studies we have is limited, also the geographic distribution is very imbalanced. And we all know that 
climate factors can be can vary a lot oh, in, in different yes, yeah, in different yes. countries yeah so we really want to see a more balanced and diversified mm -hmm. data distribution oh absolutely well this is fantastic work thank you so much for sharing it with me I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time at the meeting. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. My name is Mauricio Torres Padilla. I'm from Bogota, Colombia, where I, uh, currently I'm in Bay. I'm, I am based, and the poster we're presenting is about 13 patients with dystrophic EB that wouldn't couldn't be included on the East trial because of the exclusion criteria and and, well, and some issues about traveling and. We, with them, I, we have been following up for the last 24 months. The East trial, for those who doesn't know, it's uh, oleogel, which is a product, a phytotherapeutic approved by EMA for the use in recessive and dystrophic EB. And the mechanism of action is decrease inflammation, accelerate wound process. So with the our, our cohort uh, includes the majority of 13 patients, as I was saying before. The majority were female. 10 of the patients has recessive dystrophic EB, 3 have, uh, presents with dominant dystrophic EB. And we calculated the, the two principal clinical scales, EB-DASI for activity and damage of the wounds. But for the follow-up, we continue with the BSAP, which is the body surface area affected by partial thickness wounds. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of our of the treatment, the majority of the patient has a BSAP of 27%, and after the follow-up of this 24 months, the majority, the, the, the mean patient was has a 10.4% of BSAP, which is very similar for, from the results from the East trial, which mm -hmm. is a uh, 50% chances of the of the wounds to be closed at day 45. In our patients, there was no severe adverse events. There are some patients that has uh, increment in the itchiness, probably related with excessive use of the product. Mm -hmm. And I found it very interesting, and it's because most of the patients has a lot of itch, percent with their increasing itchiness. They live in the in the on the sea level, so mm. they they use, they live in hot mm. and humid weather. Mm. Mm -hmm. So I think probably nowadays that there are in some countries that, that they are using the product, probably will be some difference during the season time, mm -hmm. and maybe during the summer will be a good idea just to stop the medication and and continue. Another very good findings findings was. Uh, like the majority of the patients present in, they, they feel more, uh, have a good uh, mood. Uh, Their the, quality of life the quality has improved. Of life was, exactly. Yes. Thank you. you yes. Take the words yes, out. Yes. So yes, the quality of life was, was better. And also most of them were able to return to work or return to school. Mm. So this is the paper we present. This is really amazing work, and I heard your talk this morning in the Amrit session, and um, your passion for working with these children in the clinic was very evident in your talk. And just as a as a clinician and working with these children and these families, what how does having a product like this make you feel? Well, I think it's 
like it's, it's a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. We know that uh, the, this product is not curative. Right. This is not genetic, but, but also it has a property of change and, and it's a burden of the disease modifier medication. So that for me is very important. And, and I think uh, for me as a clinician, not as scientific from the from like other colleagues that they are working right now on, on the different different new treatments. Uh, this is something that now right now is reachable. This is like you can give some hope and some like options of the treatment for, for our patients. Yeah, yeah. It's really about having this really important swell of hope kind of in the now. This is amazing work. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to these interviews. If you didn't get a chance to catch the on-camera interviews I conducted with various attendees at the meeting, hop on over to our website, www.peterresearch.org forward slash education, or you can just click next and listen to an audio version of them now. I also want to make sure that you know that the next Society for Investigative Dermatology meeting will be in May in 2024 in Dallas, Texas, May 15 to 18 to be exact, and we hope to see you there. Also, hopefully you've heard the good news, but Pedra's conference is open for registration. We will be in Atlanta, Georgia, November 9th through the 11th, and we certainly hope that you can make it. So check it out at www.pedraresearch.org. Thanks so much for listening.